This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. begin with the disclaimer that not everything published in mainstream news media is true. Not by a country mile. We have seen that uh, time and time again. That being said, uh, there was a rather explosive article that came out in the uh, New York Times on Friday, and basically it indicated that Israel knew Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago. And there was a blueprint that was reviewed by the New York Times that laid out the attack in detail. And Israeli officials dismissed this as aspirational and ignored specific warnings. And initially, when I saw that this was reported, I said, well, hey, if this is true, Netanyahu's got to go. But based on what I'm seeing here, apparently this didn't even get up to Netanyahu. There were other intelligence and security officials that stopped this and pumped the brakes on this. And they said, no, no, this is never going to happen. It's not realistic. What do you mean? This is science fiction. They're going to have hand gliders come over the wall and uh, attack a music festival and rape people and stab people and no and fire rockets. It's not going to happen. They've never done anything like that. But apparently Israeli officials, if if this is true in the Times and uh, who knows if it is, but it seems pretty well sourced. The Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th terrorist attack more than a year before it happened. Documents, emails, and interviews all show this. But Israeli military and intelligence officials dismissed the plan. They said it was too difficult for Hamas to carry out. This approximately 40-page document, which the Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to the deaths of about 1,200 people. This translated document, the Jericho Wall document, was reviewed by the Times, and it did not set a date for the attack, but it described a methodical assault designed to overwhelm the fortifications around the Gaza Strip, 
take over Israeli cities, storm key military bases, including a division headquarters. And Hamas followed the blueprint with shocking precision. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the outset of the attack, drones to knock out the security cameras and automated machine guns along the border, and gunmen to pour into Israel en masse in paragliders, on motorcycles, and on foot. All of that happened on October 7th. This plan was carried out exactly as it was planned. And this plan was more than a year old. And the Israeli intelligence community and the Israeli military had this. Now, there have been so many comparisons made to September 11th. This is yet another glaring example of the similarity between this and the 9-11 terrorist attack. You know, we had heard, um, no, I mean, it's documented, that there was a presidential briefing that President Bush received, an intelligence briefing, a month before September 11th with the headline, Al-Qaeda determined to attack within the United States. There were people within the Bush administration, people like former counterterrorism advisor Richard Clark that warned an Al-Qaeda attack was imminent. There were people outside of the Bush administration that were advising the government with a great deal of experience. Senator, Former Senator Gary Hart, a Democrat, uh, former Senator Warren Rudman, a Republican, they released a bunch of recommendations before September 11th, a warning about certain types of things. And the 9-11 Commission reviewed this, and they said, oh, well, what happened was this was a failure of imagination on the part of the Bush administration. They didn't believe, and not just the Bush administration, the broader national security apparatus, they didn't believe, they didn't imagine that because it had never happened before that you could do the kinds of things that we saw on September 11th. So the Hamas plan, I think, was ignored for similar reasons. I think the Israeli officials saw this plan and said, well, you know, they've never done anything like this before, so it's probably unlikely that this is going to happen again or happen in the first place. So this plan included details about the location and size of Israeli military forces. It included communication hubs, other sensitive information. It raises all sorts of questions about how Hamas gathered its intelligence because apparently the Hamas intelligence gathering operation was much more sophisticated than I think a lot of folks, at least in the Israeli community, believed was possible. And a lot of folks are asking the question, were there leaks inside the Israeli security establishment. So this document has been circulated widely among Israeli military and intelligence leaders, but the experts, you got to love the experts. The experts always get it wrong. The experts determined that an attack of that scale and ambition was beyond Hamas's capability. And uh, it's not clear whether Prime Minister Netanyahu saw this document or his other top you know, cabinet officials. That's not spelled out. Last year, shortly after the document was obtained, officials in the Israeli military's Gaza division, which is responsible for defending the border with Gaza, said that Hamas's intentions were unclear. Here was a military assessment at the time. It's not yet possible to determine whether the plan has been fully accepted and how it will be manifested. Then in July, 
just three months before the attacks, a veteran analyst um, warned that Hamas had conducted an intense day-long you listen to this? This was in July. An intense day-long training exercise that appeared similar to what was outlined in the blueprint. So understand what occurred here. They had knowledge of the plan a year in advance. They saw that Hamas was training for this plan three months in advance. But a colonel in the Gaza division brushed off the concerns of the analyst. I utterly refute that the scenario is imaginary. The analyst wrote in response after she was brushed off. The the analyst tried to warn people. She was Israel's Richard Clark. The Hamas training exercise, she said, fully matched the content of Jericho Wall. It is a plan designed to start a war. It's not just a raid on a village. Officials uh, privately concede that had the military taken these warnings secretly, seriously, excuse me, and redirected significant reinforcements to the south where Hamas attacked, Israel could have blunted the attacks and maybe even prevented them. Instead, the Israeli military was unprepared as terrorists streamed out of the Gaza Strip, and it was the deadliest day in Israel's history. I'm curious what you think about this. What do you make of this? One, I mean, if Netanyahu did know, and we don't know that he did, is this enough to get rid of him in my view it is two how do we make sure that this doesn't happen again if you're the united states or if you're israel how do you make sure that if you get a warning that seems fantastical because it's never happened how do you make sure that that is taken seriously and dealt with and prevented And look, this is the most inflammatory thing that I'll even put out there. And I don't believe that this is the case. But I have heard from a number of people the theory, and it is a conspiracy theory, that Netanyahu or others in the Likud government, they knew about this and were prepared to allow this attack to occur just so they could go into Gaza and start this war and really clean house, not in a mowing the lawn way that, um, you know, that they had been doing previously, but in a way that would be definitive and put an end to Hamas once and for all. Now, I don't buy that. I, I Whatever you might think of Netanyahu, I don't believe that he would allow over uh, any significant number of his own citizens to be murdered, including innocent people, just so that he could carry out this war on Gaza. I, I just, I refuse to believe that. I think that's a unique level of being evil. They, they always made the same argument about FDR and Pearl Harbor. They said uh, FDR knew about the Pearl Harbor attack before it happened, and he allowed it to happen just so the United States could enter World War II. People do point to some evidence of that. I don't think he knew of that specific attack. Now, if this was true of Netanyahu, it's much worse than simply Pearl Harbor because Pearl Harbor was at the very least a military installation. Here, we're talking about innocent people, civilians, being murdered. I'm curious what you think should be done to make sure this doesn't happen again. And I'm curious what you think 
should be done to all the people that brushed this off. In my view, it's very clear. I think every single person that dismissed this as fanciful or imaginary, every one of these Israeli security officials, every one of the people in the government that saw this, they ought to be fired pronto. So um, the Israeli military and the Israeli security agency did not comment on the uh, New York Times article Officials wouldn't say how they obtained the Jericho wall document, but it was among several versions of attack plans collected over the years. So, um, you know, you you know, Michael Smirkanish mentioned this on his show on CNN on Saturday. And I had forgotten this until he mentioned this, honestly. Do you know what occurred in a secret meeting in October of 2001? Do you remember what it was like? In October of 2001, people were terrified. Not only were they still reeling from all the dead bodies as a result of 9-11, but people – there was this feeling, especially in New York, but I'm sure this was true around the country. There was this feeling that you had no idea what was going to happen next. There was uh, the plane crash, which – you know, in Rockaway, which people were reeling from. You had the situation with with the anthrax attacks just starting to get – sent out, and people were literally terrified. So what the Pentagon did was they called in, and The Wrap had a very interesting article on this about two years ago, the publication The Wrap. They called in all of Hollywood's top A-listers, and they had them meet in a secret meeting with government officials and had them imagine the worst possible scenarios that they could think of and tell the government about them. So Oliver Stone was there. David Fincher was there. John Singleton was there. uh, Dick Wolf from Law and Order. David Milch from NYPD Blue. All these people were asked to imagine the worst possible types of terrorist attack, the kind of thing that you could only put in a movie and tell the government about it. And then the government would be tasked with trying to figure out a way to stop this. Uh, Stephen D'Souza, the screenwriter from Die Hard. I mean, it's a who's who of action movies and police dramas that was in this meeting. Maybe this is the kind of creative thinking and out-of-the-box thinking that we need in government more often. Because how often does Hollywood get it right and the bureaucrats in the government get it wrong? And I think it's that kind of... You know, again, the 9-11 Commission called it a failure of imagination. I think that was very much on display here in Israel not taking this document seriously if what's being reported in the Times is true. But as I said, they're actually pointing to this 40-page document. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Silas. Hello, Silas. How you doing? Yeah, they're not just movie. Uh, They're not just some scenario in a movie. We're going to be found just as flat-footed here because this may be a larger country than Israel, but they've got more than a million operatives already here. And then maybe down the road when you flag what I say, You'll say, yeah, I guess he was right. And what would you do if 1,000 of them in your neighborhood 
started kicking in doors and killing people and raping people. I mean, I mean, fortunately, on my block, you know, we have a lot of cops and they're very heavily armed. But I think in most blocks, uh, that would be a real problem, Silas. Um, I don't know that that necessarily. First of all, obviously, I hope your scenario doesn't come to pass. But I would love to hear the a solution prospectively to how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? How do we make sure the government doesn't ignore a crucial warning? And number two, what should become of these security officials, these intelligence officials, and potentially even members of the government that ignored this Jericho wall document, 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Hi. Yeah, hi, Frank. Good morning. You know, with, in regards to Netanyahu with the breach, uh, I've read a book about him, the Netanyahu years, and his administrations have been known to be disorganized. So I'm not surprised. In regards to his political fate, once this campaign in Gaza and the Middle East, uh, once that concludes uh, and this unity government is, uh, you know, dissolved, uh, that then we'll decide. We'll see if he can survive politically. And in regards to George Bush with 9/11, I don't think it's really you could point the finger at George Bush. Because usually there's a transition when you become president. He was even president a year. So if any fault with the breach of security with uh, 9-11 and happened in America, I think that lies with Bill Clinton. All right. Well, I look, I believe me, Al, I believe there's uh, plenty of blame to go around. And I think in terms of uh, national security and intelligence, there was a, a lot of the same people there in the in the Clinton and Bush administrations. But uh, I think um, I, I don't think you can absolve Bush and Cheney and their team of, of any blame at all. I, I think that, you know, it happened on their watch. They they own it. 800-848-9222. Uh, David is in the Bronx. Hi, David. Yes. Good morning, Frank. OK, Netanyahu has to go. And I'll tell you why. This same thing happened in 1973 with the Yom Kippur War. Right, Golda Meir, right. Right, exactly. And she ended up out of office because of it. And the reason was there were signs that Egypt, Syria, and these other countries were all gearing up to attack. But they believed, oh, they're not capable of it. And they didn't do anything. And the same thing happened here. There has to be a mechanism. And I believe Richard Clark referred to this on Smirconish about Cassandra's. When you have Cassandras, people who give warnings about things and who are ignored, there has to be a mechanism for them to pass their information further up the chain. Because apparently whoever this was or whoever they were, their information did not reach the top as far as we know. And if, if that's the case, there's a problem that Israel really has to get down and figure out. Because when this war is over, and it will be over eventually – how are they going to prevent this from happening again? How are they going to make sure that intelligence isn't ignored? And I think the most important thing is, and this also happened with Pearl Harbor, by the way, you can never assume that your enemy is inferior to you. You have to give them credit for being as smart and as determined as mm. you are, because with Pearl Harbor, they didn't believe the Japanese were capable of staging an attack on the naval base. And clearly that turned out to be wrong as well. And surprisingly, Roosevelt, didn't face consequences for that. But in this case, Netanyahu, I think, because he is the one at the top, the buck stops at the top, 
he's going to have to face responsibility when the war is over. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, David. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. You know, if there's time later, I uh, do want to mention the rationale that the Biden administration, because in seeing all these stories, the, the only people, I mean, this is just a disaster for everybody. I mean, now Israel's beginning this invasion of southern Gaza. And I think m- myself and I think most sane and sober people are of the hope that Israel's able to kill as many Hamas terrorists as possible, disable and uh, dismantle as much Hamas infrastructure as possible, and preserve as many innocent people's lives as possible. But the the only people that are benefiting from this ongoing chaos in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe are the military defense contractors. Their stock keeps going up and their profits keep going up. And the uh, the we'll, we'll chat about this later. But President Biden's request to Congress for a for more money, essentially. The rationale that they use is, to me, absolutely insane because they're making an economic case for giving Ukraine more aid. It's no longer about helping Ukraine. It's Then it was about hurting Russia. It's not about that anymore. Now it's about they're pretty much openly saying the industrial base in our country will be helped if they keep buying weapons made in Arkansas and made in Arizona. To me, it's a bizarre rationale as to why we should keep siding uh, against the largest nuclear power in the world. But we'll get into that a little bit later. 800-848-9222. Michael is on the Upper East Side. Hi, Michael. Hi. I've got several points to make, so give me a little time. Going back to 9-11, There was an attack on the World Trade Center in the garage. You remember that? Yeah, 1993. My Uncle Carmine was working in that building at the time. Uh, I knew somebody that was a blockage. And in any event, the the FBI raided, uh, I forgot the guy's name. He's in jail. Yeah, the the blind Uh, Sheikh. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman. Yeah, but yeah, but there was also somebody else involved besides him that had an apartment. The FBI took all the documents, all the stuff, I should say, out of this guy's apartment, and they never analyzed it. If they had, they would have had very distinct clues about potentially what would happen with the other building because these guys said they were going to come back, especially the blind sheik said that. Now, another problem with 9-11 was, and I cannot remember the name of this woman, uh, she prevented the FBI, which is here, United States, from communicating with the CIA Mm. because that's overseas. And there was a woman, I don't know her name, with the FBI that had very good instincts as to what was going on with the flight training. They were training, but they didn't. All they wanted to do was to train how to land. 
Um, and it was You mean not out of from, land, just out of fly, not out of land. Oh, okay, sorry. Hmm. Um, now, the other thing, when people are attacking Netanyahu, when these plans, and there is a date to it, these plans were drawn up before Netanyahu came into power. Because if you remember, there was a whole bunch of rapid elections and yep. everything. Yep. So, so he was not in power. And you have to remember, he helped plan the raid at Entebbe. And his brother, his younger brother, was killed in Entebbe. So he has no use for terrorists. Yeah, no, absolutely, Michael. That's why I don't buy into that theory that he would ever allow this to happen. Honestly, I don't think any Israeli prime minister of any party would ever allow this to happen. I I will say, though, uh, that... um, Netanyahu did take office the most recent time in December of 2022. So he would have been prime minister at the time of that July warning about the training. But whatever. Again, I don't buy that he um, wanted the attack to occur. I'm not saying he – I have no idea whether he knew about this document or not. But there's no way that he wanted this attack to occur. That that I just can't believe. I've actually had some – private behind the scenes debates with some of my colleagues about that. It's see some of my colleagues, when they talk about this on air, what they say in private is very different because they don't necessarily want to own some of the comments that they have privately. And I was talking with someone who said, yeah, I believe it. I believe Netanyahu knew about it and allowed this to happen as a, uh, as an excuse to go in, but uh, I'm not going to, but you know, that's besides the point. So with the close relationship of the American intelligence community and the Israeli intelligence community, a lot of folks are wondering, did America know about this? Well, Admiral John Kirby, spokesman for the Pentagon, was asked about this on Meet the Press on Sunday by Kristen Welker. Can you give us a sense This morning, what is the status of negotiations to resume a temporary truce? Well, there are no official negotiations going on right now, Kristen, and that's because Hamas. Hamas failed to come up with yet another list of women and children that could be released, and we know they're holding additional women and children, not combatants, not female IDF soldiers, but innocent civilians, women and children that they have that they couldn't put on a list and and, uh, and turn that in. So unfortunately, the negotiations have stopped. That said, what hasn't stopped is our own involvement trying to get those back on track and trying to discuss with those partners and, and all those interlocutors, see if we can't get it back in place. So those discussions have halted what is the potential timeline to get them back on track? Jim? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that one. I, I, what I can tell you is that we are still working it really hard, hour by hour, to see if we can't get the sides back to the table and see if we can't get something moving. Um, we would like that to happen today. But honestly, I, I just don't know. All right, that was obviously not the audio that I thought it was. But um, in any event, uh, Kirby insisted that as far as he knows, no one in the intelligence community, the American intelligence community, had any knowledge of this. Now, I'd be, quite honestly, a little surprised by that because uh, it's my understanding that the American intelligence community and the Israeli communi- uh, intelligence community are in constant communication and they are 
constantly working together. But and, you know, honestly, Pentagon spokespeople have a tremendous history of lying to the public. We'll, we'll work on finding that um, that audio, but uh, I don't we, we don't have it at the moment. All right. We'll continue in a moment with your calls. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is a uh, birthday bumper music selection by a longtime friend of mine, going back almost two decades, Tamara Karsev. Uh, I worked with Tamara when she was doing uh, affiliate relations for uh, ABC Radio when I was working at WABC, and she did affiliate relations for uh, Sean Hannity and Mark Levin, um, Curtis, when Curtis had a syndicated show, a number of other number of other shows. Then she went to Air America for a while. When there was a round of layoffs, did affiliate relations there. Then I think she was at Newsmax. And now she's been at Fox News Radio for a long time and does a great job there. And uh, she represents all the Fox News Radio shows. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, uh, Jimmy Fela, and uh, does a great job. I ran into her recently. And uh, today's her birthday. And this is a musical selection of hers. Um, she's a wonderful person and uh, a good friend who uh, we have a lot of stories together. I'll tell you that. But... Uh, this Hall and Oates song also very apropos because we're starting to learn more about their feud with one another, and it looks like it all boils down to whether to sell the, the ownership of their music and how to make money doing that. So we'll we'll analyze that in a future legal segment. Well, I did want. I'll get back to your calls in a moment. A number of celebrities, including. Billie Eilish, Charlize Theron, Clint Eastwood, Kim Basinger, uh, Jeff Bridges, Andy McDowell, Courtney Cox, Ricky Gervais, Zoe Deschanel. They have all signed a letter. And I am, if, if I was a big enough celebrity that I would be asked to sign this letter, I absolutely would have. But nobody asked, nobody cared. They have all signed this letter calling for an end to cruel dog and cat meat, the cruel dog and cat meat trade in Indonesia. Yeah, more than 30 stars from the worlds of acting, fashion, music. They've called on the president of Indonesia 
Joko Widodo in a joint letter to end Indonesia's brutal dog and cat meat trades following the rescue of desperate animals from one of the country's most notorious markets, the Tomaham Extreme Market. More than 130,000 dogs and countless cats annually are slaughtered in public markets across Indonesia. In July of this year, one of the mayors out there worked with animal charities to permanently shut down the sale and slaughter of dogs and cats for human consumption at the infamous market, ending years of suffering. Some of the charities that she partnered with rescued the remaining animals found alive at the market. And I've seen the pictures of some of these animals and they'll they'll curl your hair. They are absolutely, I mean, the conditions that these dogs and cats were being treated under were just horrendous. And these stars, which include uh, Dame Judi Dench, Alicia Silverstone, Eddie Vedder, and others, they praised those leaders throughout Indonesia who've taken action to eradicate the dog and cat meat trades in their jurisdiction. You know, again, I'm all for this. Um, but let's say somebody that supports this, let's say somebody from Indonesia who likes to sell dogs and cats to be eaten in Indonesia. Let's say they say to me, well, Frank, you're eating lobster. You're eating octopus. You eat, uh, you eat all sorts of seafood and, you know, Americans are eating chicken like crazy. Why don't you get off your high horse and stop telling us what kind of animal meat we enjoy when you're enjoying animal products itself? Uh, Tell me the last time there was a day when you haven't eaten cheese, right? I mean, or, or seafood. And then you can come and lecture us about dog and cat consumption. So I can't explain why, but it is worse. It is worse. I recognize they're all living creatures. But in my view, and I guess this is a cultural bias because in America we grow up thinking of dogs and cats as as dinner. Excuse me, as pets, not as dinner. But it is it just is worse. You know what it is? I think maybe it comes down to personality. I, I know that sounds silly. But dogs have a real personality. Dogs, I mean, they're much more so than I think a shrimp or a lobster, right? So I would love to hear from you, one, I think most of you agree with me, but whether you agree or disagree, what you think of this call to have Indonesia stop killing 130,000 dogs each year for human consumption and countless numbers of cats. And I want you to be prepared to answer the question of why dog and cat meat, murdering dogs and cats for human consumption is different, if you think it is, than chicken or shrimp or lobster. I mean, look, a shrimp has no personality, as far as I know. I mean, I'm sure 100 years from now when we, when we discover that shrimp are the most intelligent 
creatures on Earth. I'm sure someone will play this tape back and say, oh, listen to how barbaric they were back then. They thought it was okay to eat shrimp. But this is a what's going on in Indonesia is now a worldwide movement. And the fact of the matter is Indonesia is a popular tourist destination for travelers all across the world, United States, Australia, UK, Europe, they all go to Indonesia. And the celebrities who signed this letter are representing both the international and the national community who want to see a dog and cat meat-free Indonesia. I want to see it, but if someone were to call me out on my hypocrisy, I don't know that I have a well-thought-out answer. So help me out. Why is it worse? 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, I know you're a a dog guy. I assume you're with me that um, dog meat consumption should be prohibited. Yeah, it is a little bit disgusting. All right, I, don't, I don't like it. Uh, how is it different from, say, eating chicken or eating beef or eating pork, though? Because they're pets. They're pets to us. But in Indonesia, they don't view them that way. They view them as food. Do you view them as food? Well, no. I just spent 10 minutes explaining that I didn't. But why? Why do I think it's bad? Or why do I think they shouldn't be food? Yeah. I don't think... Because, well, well like you just said, we, we... I mean, we... we They are animals in a different way that we have an attachment to. I don't... Does anyone have an attachment to shrimp? Well, I don't think so, right? But who knows, right? Uh, thank you. Uh, I do remember Blaise. there was a uh, whole thing on Sunday Night Live once about Larry the Lobster, if they should boil Larry the Lobster mm-hmm. back in the, I think this was in the 80s. And they did a whole live thing about Larry the Lobster. I think they saved him. I got to look it up. I don't remember. Uh, uh, I mean, I remember the reference, but I, I don't remember what, what the result was. So someone just messaged me, and you could send me a text message at 816-8-MORANO. That's 816-8-MORANO, saying... Um, saying it's easy to criticize the way other cultures sustain their nutritional needs. I can't imagine how that can be justified. You know, that's what I'm saying is I am speaking, we're all a product of where we come from, right? And my cultural biases are 100% on display here. If I grew up in Indonesia eating dog meat and the choice was eat dog meat or starve to death, I would probably be viewing the situation a little bit differently. So with the understanding that my cultural biases affect where I come from on this, I'm wondering if you can help me have a more coherent, well-thought-out reason as to why dog and cat meat consumption is not okay, but consumption of other creatures is. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Oh, you know the other thing that drives me crazy? Gmail. Gmail does so many things that frustrate me. They really do. Because I have I don't I don't believe that I have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, not by a long shot, because I've known people that have really dealt with OCD and they have a really tough time getting through the day. I don't believe that I have that. However, I do have many obsessive tendencies and I do have certain compulsions. And one of them is I have to look at all of my emails in order, okay? So I go from the oldest to the most current, and it really gets me in trouble because a lot of times I'll miss important emails or not see them for hours later, whereas if I would just peruse through my emails and pick 
which ones that I wanted to look at, I would see the important ones first. But instead, I give, I go through every email in the order that I got. But here's what kills me about what Gmail does. So because I'm nocturnal, Gmail, they, someone will send me an email. And then because I'm asleep during the day at the time they've sent it, they won't see a response. And then they'll follow up a few hours later. Now, when that same person follows up, that bumps their email to the back of the list. It should stay where it was when their initial unread email was posted. I I mean, I hope I'm being clear. So if someone emails me at 930 and says, hey, Frank, you know, I'd love to uh, come on your show or I'd love to have dinner with you or here's that information you were looking for. Is there anything else you need? Let me know the details. And then I don't see it because I'm asleep. They'll then email me again, and I'll start the process of going through my emails around 5 p.m., and then they'll not have heard from me, and they'll send me a follow-up email around 4.30, 5 o'clock. Now that email goes to the back of the list. It's the most recent email that goes in order. It should be the original email. That's my two cents. If anybody from Gmail is listening, that's my suggestion. <laughs> Take it under advisement. 800-848-9222. Peter is in New Jersey. New Jersey. Peter, you were um, in military intelligence? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, you- I, 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 uh, I started out as a private in the Army back in the 60s. I retired as a lieutenant colonel in the reserves. Oh, wow as a military intelligence officer. And uh, I'd like to comment about... uh, Right, so comment. Go ahead, Peter. Okay. Uh, With Pearl Harbor, when I was in my officer's advanced course, we had to do indications and warnings paper, which was like a, a, a master's thesis. And uh, they gave us several things, Pearl Harbor, the Seven Day War, Battle of the Bulge. I picked Pearl Harbor, and I found there was so much information about Pearl Harbor. And uh, I came to the conclusion that, oh, FDR and a handful, I'm talking 10, 12 people, in Washington, knew Pearl Harbor was coming, but FDR wanted Pearl Harbor to happen so he could get us in the war. And he wasn't, he didn't think there was going to be so many casualties as there was at Pearl Harbor. And, uh, Hello? he went on. He oh, but when they broke the Japanese purple codes in Hawaii, and I can't remember his name now, he's a master code breaker in Hawaii. He oh, they had to be sent to Washington, and so FDR controlled how many people knew that information. Mm-hmm. And and I feel FDR was very confident 
Right. Hey, uh, Peter, I have to break. I appreciate your service and the phone call. Uh, You know, it's it's the anniversary, obviously, of Pearl Harbor on Thursday. So we'll we'll review what happened with Pearl Harbor. I mean, my view is that FDR did not know about it in advance. My view is, though, that and I think this is backed up by historians and maybe we'll have one of them on on Thursday, that FDR's actions were provocative And this would be the logical conclusion. And one of the people that chronicled from 1943 to 1963 a remarkable secret history was um, Herbert Hoover. And we'll we'll talk about it on Thursday. I don't want to get off on a Pearl Harbor tangent unless there's a comparison as it relates to this Hamas attack on on October 7th. All right. One open line, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Selection by Tamara Karsev. Uh, one open line if you want to try and jump on board. Uh, 800-848-9222. I'm going to get back to your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, maybe a month or two ago, I took my son Carmine to a two-year-old birthday party at basically an indoor playground. You, you know these places. It's almost like a Chuck E. Cheese, but it's a, a lot nicer. The name of the one oh, – I'm not going to give the name. They don't advertise, so why should I give them publicity? But um, they um, – it was a nice place, and Carmine had such a great time. There was a ball pit. There was a trampoline. There's a fake kitchen. There's trucks. There's toys. There's all sorts of cool stuff. There's a, a, what they call a sand pool. He had a great time. And then um, I, I said to my friend – that whose whose daughter it was, I said to him, you know, this is really great. I'm going to try and bring Carmine guy, back here. And he said, well, there's a return, a free a free return in the goodie bag. I said, that's great. I'm definitely going to use it. So he said, hey, you know what? Here, take two goodie bags. Bring them back twice. So um, they both had an expiration of December 5th. So yesterday, we had used one a week or so ago. Carmine, again, had a great time, tried even more of the things that he didn't try last time. And then one of them, yesterday was the last day to use the other one. Now, this indoor playground is a half hour from where we live. But um, you know, the outdoor playground is two minutes from where we live. It's a two-minute drive, maybe a 10-minute walk. 
And so it was warm enough that we could have gone to the outdoor playground. So I'm very conflicted. I said, do we go to the outdoor playground and enjoy one of the few over 50 degrees days that we can and be able to go somewhere that's two minutes away? Or do we drive 25 minutes and basically lock ourselves into a three-hour commitment with driving there, playing there, and driving back and you know, push off the process of getting work done? So I said, let me leave it up to Carmine. I said, buddy, do you want to go to the outdoor playground or the indoor playground? And he says, indoor playground. And I, and I thought maybe he just said that because it was the last thing that I said. So I rephrased the question. I said, Carmine, do you want to go uh, to the indoor playground or do you want to go to the outdoor playground and see the uh, trampoline, uh, excuse me, and see the handball courts and do all the things you like to do there? And again, he said indoor playground. So he really did want to go there. So we went there and um, it would have been $25 if we didn't have this free pass. He had a great time. A really uh, just a terrific time, and um, he was getting much more bold in terms of actually going down the slide by himself into the ball pit. Even when we were there last week, he would only go in, go down the slide with me coming down, but um, he was much more independent this time around. So he really likes it. I'm thinking about um, getting a membership there for the winter months because if we can't go to the playground, the outdoor playground all winter, we're going to have to play, find somewhere else to play out indoors, and he really does seem to like this one. There are some that are a little closer to us, but I don't think any are uh, this elaborate in terms of all the different things that this place offers. So that's what I'm, I'm thinking of. Um, although I don't know if he would get bored with it. You know, uh, It's $99 for unlimited visits a month. So I um, think we might, do, might join. I don't know. All right, I'm going to get back to your calls in a moment. There is one open line, 800-848-9222. Brenda Lee is in the news again. You remember her song? She was sorry. Well, there's a lot of people that are sorry. We'll get into why. Keep asking questions.